second missionary journey. Remember, he was going through checking on the churches in Asia Minor. God kind of hindered him from doing other ministry there. He saw the Macedonian vision and went over to Greece. And so while he was in Greece, he's already been to Thessalonica. He's been to Berea. He's been to Athens. Now we're coming to Corinth. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was probably the center of commerce for the area. And I'll tell you why. It lays on an isthmus. It's, it's on a piece of land where it's got two seas on each side. So you had, if you look at the map there, you can see where Corinth is. It's over on the right side. It was on a strip of land where they could go from one Instead of sailing all the way around Greece, you could just cross over and get to the other sea. Now, the problem was that's land. They didn't have a, a, a canal. They have a canal there now. Back then, they didn't have a canal, so what they would do to save money, and actually the, the money that they would pay to do this would save them a lot of money for m making that journey by ship. They would literally take the boat out of the water and roll it on logs over to the other side. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? They, if, you could, if you could picture that, it was basically an industry of moving ships from one body of water to the other. And so it had lots of commerce because everybody went there. Lots of commerce, lots of money flowing through the town. It was a very rich city. It also had lots of pagan worship. So there was lots of temples there. Now the interesting thing about these temples, they had lots of thousands, we're talking thousands, of temple priestesses, which to be honest with you were nothing more than prostitutes. So they had thousands of prostitutes there. And so what people would do is, is when they would engage in the worship of whatever God, they would engage in worship with these priestesses and through interacting with these prostitutes would be, quote, having a spiritual experience. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? And so it was a very wicked place. In fact, there was a saying, some of the old writers, like how many of you remember Homer from high school, the Iliad and the, and the Odyssey, you know, Ulysses and so forth. Remember that? Homer made a statement about a Corinthian girl, and it wasn't a really nice thing to say about someone being a Corinthian girl. It meant that she was a slut. Did you understand what I'm saying? An easy girl or something, or, you know, a whore or something. So, so we're talking about a place that's lots of money, very wicked, center of commerce, a lot's going on there. So this is where Paul comes to. So we're going to look at that today. And obviously he establishes the church there because we have two letters in our New Testament that are written to the church there. So let's talk about how he establishes that church there. Look with me. First of all, we're going to talk about his arrival in Corinth in verses 1 to 3. Now, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, 
who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Okay, so let's take a look here. First of all, after the events of Acts 17, Paul departed Athens and went to Corinth. So after his interaction at the Areopagus, uh, the Acropolis there, he basically went from Athens with his companions when they arrived and went to Corinth. And I already told you about how evil it was. Let me tell you, the population of Corinth was 700,000 people. 200,000 were freedmen. 500,000 were slaves. So I want you to think about it. I already told you that a majority of the society is slave people. And here in this corner... In this community, 2,000 are freedmen. The other 500,000 are slaves. So when Paul arrived in Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Now, interesting thing, Aquila and Priscilla are always mentioned together in the New Testament. They're mentioned in Romans. They're mentioned in the Corinthian letters. They're mentioned in 2 Timothy, Paul's final letter. They were Jewish tent makers. Now, Aquila and Priscilla had recently come to Corinth after Claudius, Emperor Claudius, expelled all the Jews from Rome. This happened this sometime during the reign of Claudius, which was sometime around the year 41 to 51. He had all the Jews banished from Rome. And so one Roman historian from that time period wrote, since the Jews were constantly making disturbances at the instigation of Christus, he, the emperor, expelled them from Rome. All right, stop for a moment. The way he spells Christus is C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. So what he's saying is, is because the Jews were constantly having disturbances, Concerning this Christus, Emperor Claudius threw them out of Rome. All right, now let's stop for a moment. What we know from Paul and his going to community to community, why do you think they were having disturbances? And who do you think this Christus is? Yeah, probably the message of the gospel. And you notice how they've been reacting in the synagogues to Paul and causing mob violence? You think that's happened in Rome? So what does the emperor do to, to preserve the peace in Rome? Get rid of all the Jews, okay? Get rid of all the Jews. And you're right, Bruce. Some scholars believe the name Christus referred to Christ. This would reflect that the Romans viewed Christianity at the time as a Jewish sect. You understand what I'm saying? They just viewed Christianity as just a part of Judaism. Another Roman historian from that time period wrote, For the Jews, who had again increased so greatly that by reason of their multitude, it would have seemed hard without raising a tumult to bar them from the city. He did not drive them out, but ordered them, while continuing their traditional mode of life, not holding meetings. 
So he basically said, get out of here. He didn't drive them out. He basically told them to leave, but he let them continue to worship the way that they worship. Remember, the Romans gave them an exemption from worshiping the emperor. Do you understand? So here's what's going on. So now, because Paul and Aquila were both tent makers, they stayed, he stayed and worked with them. He stayed and worked with them because they were tent makers. Now, let me explain something. When you think of tents, you usually think of like a big canvas tent. And that's true. Tent makers, though, were skilled in making tents from goat hair, wool, or skins. They were leather workers. So they didn't just make tent tents. They also made other leather goods as well. So just so you understand that. And so this was Paul's trade. They, so they had something in common. He stayed with them, and they made tents together. So he supported himself by making tents. Now look with me. We're going to see the ministry in Corinth. We're going to see this in verses 4 to 11. So notice with me verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Remember, this is his pattern. And persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. All right, so let's go through this. Interesting, isn't it? So, first of all, as was his custom, Paul preached in the synagogue every Sabbath. Now, there's going to be something unusual that you're going to maybe not see, but I'm going to tell you about his preaching here in a moment. So he's there preaching every Sabbath, all right, which is his custom. Now, when Silas and Timothy arrived, he felt compelled to preach Jesus as the Christ. Okay, so stop for a moment. While he's alone in Corinth, his companions hadn't caught up with him. Silas and Timothy had not caught up with him. He's staying with Priscilla and Aquila. He's working with them because he's a tent maker as well. And every Sabbath, every Saturday at the synagogue, he's teaching. Now, at first we would think that he's teaching about Jesus every Sabbath, right? You would assume that from the text. However, the very next verse tells you that it wasn't until <coughs> Silas and Timothy showed up that he felt compelled then to preach that Jesus was the Christ. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So the text is telling us up to this point he's just preaching and I can almost guarantee you what he's preaching is, is he's laying a foundation 
about who the Messiah is without naming him. Do you understand? He's teaching about the Messiah. So that when Paul and Silas, I mean, Timothy and Silas show up, he then begins to preach. Now, why do you think he waited until Timothy and Silas showed up? Why do you think he waited? Well, back him up, not also what he's saying, but I think it's good you're using the word back him up, okay? Because what happens every time this happens in a synagogue? When he begins to preach, Christ is the Messiah. Does everybody say, oh, wonderful, we want to get saved? People get upset, and what happens with Paul? Yeah, they want to kill him. Okay, so if you're there by yourself, You're going to be careful, right? Okay, I'll, and in fact, I'm going to tell you Paul's mindset. I'm going to tell you Paul's mindset. Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just a few books later, Romans, 1 Corinthians, chapter 2. Look with me, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come in excellence of speech and wisdom, <laughs> declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined, to know, determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at verse 3. This tells you his state when he came to the Corinthians. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. Do you understand what I'm saying? The scholars, when they look at that, are saying here, Paul is alone after being in Athens alone. He's now in Corinth alone. He's waiting for his friends. He's in a strange pagan place. Every time he preaches Jesus, what happens? Do you think you'd be scared? You think you'd be afraid? So I think it's interesting when you look here, when Silas and Timothy, he felt compelled then by the Spirit to begin to preach Jesus. Okay, so I just want you to understand a little bit of his background here and his makeup. All right? Stop for a moment. How does that make you feel when you know that the apostle himself was scared, afraid, cautious about sharing. How's that make you feel? Yep. And we get scared, don't we? If you don't get scared about sharing Jesus with somebody because you're afraid of how somebody's going to be racked, you need to tell us what you're eating. Because we need that, okay? That we need that go-go juice or whatever you're drinking. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Because most of us, even me, George, George here, I get nervous because people do react, right? Now, they didn't react like they react yet, like they did in Paul's day. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? But they did react. So I think it's a, you're right, Bruce, it is empowering. All right, let's go on. After the Jews opposed and blasphemed, Paul proclaimed that he will go to the Gentiles. Now, he, every one of the cities, he's done this, okay? The Jews rejected and they blasphemed. Paul said, okay, that's it. I'm going to the Gentiles. Okay? I'm going to the Gentiles. Now, 
Paul went to the house of justice that was located next to the synagogue. Isn't that amazing? So where does he go? Right next door. He goes right next door to the house of justice. Now, the, the name justice is a Greek name. So it's probably a Greek guy who probably went to the synagogue who was a God-fearer who what? Responded to the message of the gospel. Now, the ruler of the synagogue, this is amazing, isn't it? The ruler of the synagogue, now they didn't have pastors, they had rulers of the synagogue. So the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, and his household believed in Jesus Christ. Now that's an amazing thing, isn't it? So the, the leader, the Jewish leader of the synagogue believes with his household in Jesus. He responds. Luke records that many Corinthians believed and were baptized. So a lot of Corinthians were believing and were baptized. So here you are, you're Paul and you're nervous and you're scared. Because this usually doesn't end up well, right? But Jesus comes along and encourages him. When you look at verses 9 to 10, I think that's the, this is the, the amazing what took place in Paul's life. The Lord spoke to Paul in a dream and told him not to be afraid to speak. The Lord told him in a dream not to be afraid to speak. You think that would empower you? Let's say Jesus showed up in your dreams and said, hey, don't you worry about it. You just be you at work and you keep preaching and don't worry about it. Nobody's going to mess with you. You think you would be like, wow, Jesus appeared to me. The Lord told Paul that no one will harm him because he has many people in Corinth. Nobody's going to harm you, Paul. I have many people in Corinth. Many people. So Luke records that Paul stayed for a year and six months as he taught the word of God. Think about that. He hangs out for a year and six months in Corinth. Now, as always, there's opposition. So notice with me verses 12 through 17. Here, let me just go ahead and say this to you. This is a pattern preaching the gospel, people responding. As always, there will always be what? Opposition. If you, as an individual, or, as, or we as a church, are doing what God wants us to do, there is always going to be a response, people responding to the gospel, but there's always going to be what? When the Holy Spirit moves, there's always going to be opposition. Do you understand? Don't think it's weird. Don't think it's abnormal. What's going on here? We're always going to be opposed. Satan's always going to do something to oppose us, to attack us. Do you understand? So just recognize that. That's going to be true in your life. That's going to be true, period. If you're doing what God calls you to do, you're going to see success, you're going to see God working, but you're always going to face opposition. So I want you to notice now with me, verse 12. And when Galileo was proconsul in Acadia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. 
And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourself, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. And all the Greeks took Thosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. Kind of amazing, isn't it? Let's take a look here. Remember the promise? Don't worry. You're going to be okay. I have many people in this city, the Lord tells them. Look at what happens. The Jews opposed Paul and brought him before the proconsul Galileo. He was the brother of a famous Roman named Seneca. He was also a senator. And he became proconsul, and because of his ill health, he resigned within a few years. He was a friend of Claudius the emperor. When he was 64 years old, he committed suicide, which was a Roman thing to do. If you were facing shame or facing dishonor or even arrest, the Romans would allow their freedmen to commit suicide. And how they would do that, the common way to commit suicide among the Romans was to slit your wrists and basically let your blood drain out and die. That's what he did. So I want you to notice, so they bring him before the proconsul because they want to charge him. As This has happened before, but I want you to notice how Galileo responds. First of all, they accuse Paul of persuading men to worship God in a way contrary to Roman law. Isn't that interesting? Look who's accusing Paul. Jews. Do they worship according to Roman law? No. Isn't that amazing here? So notice now, as Paul was about to defend himself, Galileo rebuked the Jews. So think about this. Just as Paul's getting ready to open his mouth to defend himself, the proconsul, the judge, says, wait a minute, and he addresses the issue. Paul doesn't even have to defend himself. Isn't that amazing? Okay, isn't that amazing here? So Galileo stated that if it was an offense that were a criminal matter, he would listen to them. He says, look, guys, I ain't got time for this. If this was a matter of, of a criminal activity, some kind of civic thing going on here, I would listen to you. I've got time for you. But this is, doesn't see, this is a religious issue. So he stated that they should deal with this issue since it was a matter of their beliefs. Hey, this is a religious issue. You guys figure it out. I ain't got time for this. Okay? In fact, that's the way it is, can I be honest with you, even today in the United States. Sometimes there are lawsuits that happen where members sue the church or sue the pastor, and it ends up going before the courts. And in most of the cases, I would say about 90% of the cases, the judges throw it out. And the reason why is because they don't want to be seen as judging a religious matter. Do you understand what I'm saying? No matter if the judge is liberal or conservative or whatever, they tend to throw the cases out when it comes to disputes within the church. Do you understand what I'm saying? Unless it's something gross, criminal, they don't deal with it. And that's even back then. Romans had the same attitude. This is a religious issue. You guys deal with it. I ain't got time for this. 
Now, here's how he reacts, though. And you can see the animosity, even all the way back then, that the Gentiles had towards the Jews. The animosity. We've already seen earlier in the passage that they just threw all the Jews out of Rome. Notice now the animosity. He had the Jews forcibly removed from his presence. That'd be like if you go to the courtroom here at Clearfield, he tells you, I ain't going to listen to your case. And then he says, okay, leave. But in, in telling you to leave, he has all the deputies beat you out of the courtroom. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? To get you out of there, forcibly pull you out of there. Mess, I mean, think about that. That's what's going on here. Aren't you glad we don't have a court system like that? All right? That's the way it was back then. And so the Gentiles... Here, and all the Gentiles who were there watching this, there would, be a, there would be people watching this. The Gentiles took Thosthenes, the, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the proconsul. Somebody grabs a hold of the leader of the, of the synagogue now, the new leader, and they just start beating the guy in front of the proconsul. This is an amazing time period, isn't it? Now, it's interesting to me, if you look at the text, it says that the proconsul took no notice of it. If somebody's being beaten in front of you, you'd think you'd be like, what's going on over there? But he didn't even pay attention to it. Interesting, isn't it? Now, notice now, Paul leaves from there, from Corinth, to go back to Antioch. So notice with me verses 18 through 22. Two, and we'll see the end of the missionary journey here. Look with me at verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off and sent tree, for he had taken a vow. He came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea and had gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. So let's take a look here. Just four, four or five points. After staying in Corinth for a time, he sailed for Syria with Aquila and Priscilla. So Aquila and Priscilla go with him back to Syria, back to Antioch. Before he left Corinth's southwest port, he, had, he cut off his hair because he made a vow. Now, what, what kind of vow is he doing here? It's a Nazarite vow. He made a Nazarite vow, so he cut off his hair... And so for a certain period, his hair would grow out and he would not put a razor to his head, nor would he drink anything from the vine or eat anything from the vine or be in contact with dead bodies. That's a Nazarite vow. The most famous person that we knew that was under a Nazarite vow was in the Old Testament, the book of Judges. Who was that? Big brawny dude, Samson, okay? So Paul's doing a Nazarite vow which he would fulfill by the time he came to Jerusalem for the feast. All right? For the feast. So this was something that he would commonly do. See, here's the thing I want you to understand. Paul didn't give up his Jewish traditions. 
He still kept his Jewish traditions. Don't take this as you and I need to do a Nazarite vow. So Lori cut my hair yesterday, and I'm, I'm, and I'm not going to, I'm going to stay away from dead bodies and not drink any grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. And for a time, if you see my hair growing out long, you'll know that George is a Nazarite vow. But if my hair grows out wrong, it isn't going to be like Samson and I can just push the building down with my hands. No, I don't need to do that. But Paul's a Jew and he's still carrying out his traditions because he's carrying them out according to his faith. All right? So in Ephesus, so he's sailing from Corinth. He ends up in Ephesus. He preached in the synagogue where they asked him to stay for a while. And of course he says no. He refused because he wanted to keep the feast in Jerusalem. He wanted to be on his way so that he could make sure that he was in Jerusalem for the feast. Now what feast is he talking about here? The Passover. That would be the major feast that he would be going for is the Passover feast. So after landing in Caesarea, which is in Galilee, he journeyed to Antioch. Now notice it says he went down to Antioch. Why? Because if you look at the map, he's going north. It doesn't seem like he's going down. But they didn't view things based on a compass. They viewed things based on topography. Jerusalem was on a mountain. So you go up to the temple, but then everywhere else you go down from so you go down to where? Antioch. So just want to make sure you understand that. All right? So after landing in Caesarea, he journeyed to Antioch. Now, next week, we're going to look at his third missionary journey. 